got a, a good friend of mine who uh, pastors in San Antonio, and uh, his son played high school football. And if you know anything about Texas and high school football, like people really get into it. So a friend of mine was with this pastor friend, and his son was playing. And the, uh, his son made a great play. And everyone in the stands is yelling and screaming. And then the pastor friend of mine is sitting in his seat going, go, Randy. <laughs> and so my friend is like, Pastor Draper, like, man, your son just had an amazing play. Everyone's cheering and screaming. He said, why aren't you screaming and cheering? He said, I'm saving my voice for Sunday. <laughs> so I'm going to hate on the worship team, the praise team. And I'm trying to, like, save my voice for Sunday. And I'm over here worshiping. So thank you to our praise team for doing such a great job. Well, in the late 1800s uh, in America, as industrialization was going up and urbanization was going up, around the same time, revivals were also increasing. They would have these revivals all around America. And this began as people's income was going up, people were moving into cities, making more money. The prosperity gospel emerged out of that. And then after World War II, as the suburbs began to increase and people began moving into cities and suburbs and making a little bit more money, the prosperity gospel continued to increase and thrive as well and spread. And then the 70s, 80s, and in the 90s with the televangelists and all these TV preachers, now the prosperity gospel not only spread throughout America and into homes, but also around the world as well. And the prosperity gospel simply teaches this, that when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, we trust Jesus Christ, what it's going to be seen as in our lives is we will have wealth and health. We'll have financial prosperity, material prosperity, and we'll have physical health. So on the flip side, if you are poor and you're not in good health, it's because you do not have enough faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is with you and your faith, because if you had enough faith in Christ, in the Lord, then you would have health and you would have wealth. Um, and just first off, let me just mention this. That's a heretical gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, but here's the problem with that theology. That theology and that mindset has now crept into what I would call like orthodox evangelical churches. And you've heard me say this many times before in our songs and our sermons because it used to be the hero of the Bible is not you. It's not me. It's Jesus Christ. We're the enemy in the story, partly. We're the villain. And, and this preaching and music that's much more meocentric than what I call theocentric, where the focus is on you and your life and your happiness versus on God and his glory and his fame. Uh, so we even see that in the church. So again, I just want to mention that that theology is not, is not orthodox, it's heretical. But here's the other thing about theology and doctrine. As you study the Bible, as you learn, as you maybe go to a community group, as you read books and listen to podcasts, any theology that comes from the Bible, any doctrine that's from the Bible, not only has to be true for a, a, a particular subset, a group of people, but has to be true for all believers everywhere. So prosperity gospel may work for like a, a wealthy suburban neighborhood like in the Bible Belt. It may work for them. But it also has to work for that Chinese believer in the underground church who's willing to give his life or her life for the gospel who's going to go to bed tonight drinking a cup of tea and eating a small bowl of rice and be malnourished and sickly. It has to work for that Iraqi believer 
who works as a seamstress 14 hours a day below minimum wage because that's the only job she can get because she's a believer. She's discriminated against simply because she names the name of Jesus Christ. It has to also work for that pastor's wife who has given her life to serving the Lord and serving people who loves the Lord with all her heart, soul, and mind and strength and yet gets a very rare form of gallbladder cancer and the Lord takes her home. It has to work even this. A very well-known prosperity gospel preacher, he got pneumonia and he later died from pneumonia. So that theology has to work not only for a very small, maybe suburban context in a very wealthy neighborhood of believers, but it has to work for every Christian everywhere. And here's what I want to look at today. Uh, I'm calling the message the anti-prosperity gospel, not because God is against prospering people and blessing people. That's not what I'm saying. God is not opposed to wealth. But what I want to do today is give you the warnings about wealth, the warnings about wealth. And it's found in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 11. As we continue the series, Kings and Prophets, the king we're looking at today is Solomon. The prophet we're looking at is God himself. There is no intermediate. There's no intermediary. God is the one who speaks to Solomon. And it's a warning about wealth. And here's the other kind of warning that's in there. As a church, we have said we have a radical focus on Jesus. And there are many things in your life, in my life, that will distract us, that will draw us away from having a radical focus on Jesus. And one of those things can be wealth. It can be wealth. It can be the things, the very things that God blesses you with. So 1 Kings chapter 10, if you look with me at verse 23. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings. So you name the era, uh, that, the kings of that era, he became greater than all the kings of the earth in wealth and wisdom. In chapter 10, the first part, verses 1 through uh, 13, they talk about how God had given him great wisdom. 14 through 22, all about his wealth. So it's God who gave him this wealth and wisdom. Verse 24, and all the earth was seeking the attention of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which who? God had put in his heart. So he didn't put it in there himself. He didn't have somebody else. He recognizes that it was God who put that in his heart. And verse 25, and they were bringing everyone a gift, articles of silver and gold, garments of weapons, balsam oil, horses and mules, so much year by year. Why are they doing this? Is because Israel, the promised land, is situated in a very unique place between Africa and the Middle East, between Africa and Europe, between the Middle East and Europe. And so traders would go through there and bring all their wares and they would pay like a tax or like we would do like a toll tax. They would pay something to keep in good graces with the king. In verse 14, it says that he received uh, 25 tons of gold every year. In modern value today, it'd be between $1 billion to $1.5 billion in gold that he would receive from all these people doing trading through Israel. So he was a very wealthy king. Verse 26, now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So each chariot had two horses, so he had 14,800 horses. And he stationed them in the chariot cities and with a king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars, a very expensive wood, as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. So they were experiencing such great prosperity that he says that silver was as common as this ordinary rocks you'd find in somebody's yard. Verse 28, also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, which is Tarsus, where Saul was from. And the king's merchants acquired them from Q for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. 
and by the same means they explored them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Arameans. So in this section, we find this, that it was God. So here's uh, point one. Don't forget, it is God who blesses us with wealth and wisdom. We recognize that it was God himself who blessed Solomon with wealth and wisdom. And we can say the very same for us as well. Wisdom is the practical application of God's word, the practical application of God's revelation. So God gave him that because Solomon prayed. God appeared to him. He says, what do you want? You can ask for anything. He says, Lord, would you give me understanding? And that's what he gave him. On top of that, he gave him great wealth. God gave him all those things. So God gave him those things. And it's a reminder to us, it's a reminder to us that God is the hand of blessing in our lives. But here's the challenge that happens is whenever we are blessed, and it's, it's, the, it's the sad tragedy, we're blessed and we forget the blesser. We are, we're blessed by God, we're uh, delivered by God, we're sustained by God, and we forget God. Why do I say that? Because he says in verse 21, he says, now all King Solomon's drinking utensils are of gold and all the utensils of the house of the timber of Lebanon were pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered as amounting to anything in the days of Solomon. And again, he had acquired large amounts of gold and silver. So silver is so common. And in Deuteronomy 17, 17, there's a warning there saying that as you enter in the promised land, do not accumulate for yourselves large amounts of gold and silver. Why did Moses say that? Why did God say that through Moses? It was a warning because you will begin to trust what you have rather than the one who gave it to you. You'll begin to trust your stuff rather than trusting God. So he says, be careful of that. And I would say that's a warning, not just to individual believers like you and I, myself included, but it's a warning even to this church that as we become more materially prosperous, as we have more money in the bank and more gifted people who are leading and leading uh, ministries and doing small groups and community groups, our tendency is going to be this, to trust in what we have rather than in God himself. So we see these very small compromises in Solomon because now the wealth and wisdom have gone to his head. On top of that, verse 28, also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. Deuteronomy 17, 16 clearly says, do not import horses from Egypt because now you're going to be in relationships with them and their faith is going to become your faith. Be careful of that. That's a cautionary note. And yet Solomon, because the wealth and wisdom have gone to his head, have said, okay, I remember the Pentateuch. I remember like God saying something about that. But you know what? They got some amazing horses in Egypt. Man, they got some amazing horses. So he says, we're going to get our horses from Egypt. So he has now be, uh, started the process of forgetting about God, forgetting that it was God who's blessed him. Um, how many of y'all in here are parents of teenagers? If you're a parent of a teenager, raise your hand in here. All right, I see those hands. Uh, how many of y'all were once a teenager? <laughs> Everybody. Comedian Jeff Allen says it this way. I believe teenagers are God's revenge on mankind. <laughs> I think one day the good Lord was looking down over his creation and said, let's see how they like it to create someone in their own image that denies their existence. And if you remember your teenage years, and if you remember as now as a parent of a teenager, you know that, that here is someone that you've created in your own image that is now dependent on you, and yet all of a sudden the car that you got them, that you maybe still pay a note on, that you pay for insurance and gas on, now it's like my car, right? Have y'all been there before, right? And they're like, you can't come in my room. My room? I, I, last time I checked, the mortgage was in my name, right? 
You ain't paying for that. I was talking to a teenage, a parent of a teenager recently, and they were talking about what they're planning on doing after they graduate college. And they were saying, yeah, I'm going to do Uber Eats and DoorDash. And he said, I can make a lot of money doing that. And he says, Icky, I need to have that boy write up a budget because he doesn't understand. All he pays for is gas. That's all he pays for. I pay for the car. I pay for the insurance. I pay for the maintenance. Now, once you put all that in there, then he realized I ain't making a whole lot of money. Because again, our tendency is to forget the hand of the one who's blessed us. Amen. So that's why he says, don't forget, it is God who blesses us with wealth and wisdom. What happens? What happens? Solomon forgets. Look at verse uh, one of chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. <clears throat> In first Kings chapter three, verse three, at the beginning of Solomon's reign, King Solomon's reign, it says that Solomon loved God. Solomon loved the Lord. But by chapter 11, now at the height of his reign, when he's got all this vast army and horses and wealth and wisdom, does he love the Lord? No, it says right here that he loved many foreign women. Again, violating the command of Deuteronomy 17, 17, where it says you're not supposed to have marital relations with women outside of the Israelites. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, Sidonians, and the Hittite women from nations of which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with, <coughs> with them, nor shall they associate with you, and they will certainly turn your heart away to follow their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. So again, he had been warned. He'd heard the command of the Lord. Verse three, he had this. If y'all think you're having trouble with one wife, he had 700 wives who were princesses. They were the daughters of other kings, so most likely some kind of allegiance, a peace treaty, and 300 concubines. He had these secondary wives, and his wives turned his heart away. So he had a 1,000 women, and they turned his heart away, even though in chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Solomon loved the Lord, and now he loves these women. Verse 4, for when Solomon's old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord, as the heart of, uh, of his father David had been a man after God's own heart. For Solomon became a follower of Ashtoreth, and they worshiped through immorality and through the worship of stars, or we would call it astrology, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Uh, both Milcom and in verse 7, Molech was worshiped through child sacrifice, which is prohibited by the Old Testament. Verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, on the mountain that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abhorrent idol of the sons of Ammon. He also did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their God. So here's a warning that we can find from the life of Solomon, and we'll look at a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8 as well. Here's a warning. These blessings can lead to forgetting the Lord and his word. These blessings, sad as it may seem, cause us or may lead us to forgetting the blessor. These blessings of wealth and wisdom at the height of his reign, military might, power, wealth. What happens even though Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, hey, you should not have these foreign wives. Deuteronomy 7 uh, verses 3 through 4 say the exact same thing. He violated that and they drew his heart away. These small compromises and his heart drifted away from the Lord because the wealth and the wisdom had gone to his head. And unlike David, Solomon did not repent. 
Um, working with the Rockets uh, as a chaplain for them, I've seen it before. There's that rookie that comes into the league, maybe a first-round pick, maybe a free agent, and they have a church background. They, they come from a Christian home, and they're a Christian. They come to chapel all the time. They get there early. They bring their little Bible or have it on their phone. They stay afterwards for questions and prayer. They'll say, hey, hey can you text me some verses during the week? Or let's do Bible study or whatever. Super eager. They're there all the time. Anytime the doors of the chapel are open, they're there. But you know what I've seen happen? Now when they sign that max contract, that max deal, and they're making 35 to $40 million a year, and they're on ESPN all the time, now that player who's in chapel all the time, that, that made the shot, would point up to the sky, now he's on all kinds of new stuff or negative things and dating this star and this kind of drama and all that, and it's as if they've forgotten about the Lord. And I've never had that kind of athletic ability. I never have. So I don't know what that's like, but I've seen it. In that junior executive who's just started at ExxonMobil, just graduated from AM, just graduated from Rice, just gotten their MBA, just started working at Shell. Man, they're at Bayou City all the time. And their prayer request is always, I feel like I'm in over my head. I don't know what I'm doing, but I just I need the Lord. And they're in community groups all the time. Whenever it's time to serve, they're always serving. And they're just always a part of Bay City Fellowship. But all of a sudden, they get promoted, executive vice president, CFO. And now that same person who's here all the time, now they're like, oh, oh, honey, you, you go ahead. You take the kids to church. I got, I got too much to do. That one who's always like, man, I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I need the Lord to help me. They're like, no, I've been here long enough. People look to me. I've got all the answers. Or it's that resident who comes, who's been here. Maybe you're a resident here today, who they were on their knees praying, God, would you open up a residence for me? And when Houston opened up, you were so grateful and so thankful. And now you feel like you're like drinking from a fire hose. You're lost all the time. You're tired. You're busy. And you're coming to buy City Fellowship and you're praying, Lord, would you help me? But now that you're that successful heart surgeon, that successful brain surgeon, and you're making $100,000 per surgery, Right now you're like, uh, honey, let's not go to Bay City today. I'm tired. You know what? You know what? Let, let's, let's just stay at home and we can just watch online. You know what? I'm getting tired of all the stuff going to Bay City. Let's just find another church. Never finding one. So it happens not just to the NBA superstars. When God blesses you with a position, wealth, and wisdom, it can happen to all of us. And for those of you in here who are saying, well, you know, I'm not like Jeff Bezos and the other guy going in space. You know, I'm not a billionaire. Did you know this? That if you, your household, if you're married, you're a husband and wife, if you're single, if you make $63,000 or more, you're in the top 0.17% of wealth in the world. So you may not feel wealthy compared to the people who live in River Oaks or certain parts of Memorial or whatever. You may not feel wealthy compared to them because they got another house in Colorado or a lake house and whatever. But compared to the rest of the world, and y'all know this, if you've traveled to developing world, if you travel for business or missions, you know how incredibly wealthy we are. That many of the things that we consider like uh, necessities in other parts of the world, they're luxuries. And sadly, many things in our lives that are really luxuries, now we consider to be necessities. 
Can I get like one amen? Maybe I heard one yup over here. Somebody said yup. And so when we're blessed by God, the great tragedy is our hearts can begin to drift from the Lord. Uh, like I mentioned before, I grew up going to the beach uh, during summer days like this. We'd go to Santa Cruz or Monterey and we'd bring our body boards or boogie boards and surfboards and we'd go. And you've seen all the stuff lately as people are going to the beach more and more about rip currents. And so we'd go to the beach and I would go out and paddle out and I would remember like my mom and dad would be right over here and they had like a picnic basket and a little umbrella. And then I would see them and I'd be waiting out there with my friends for a wave. And what happens is the rip currents will push you further out there's also something called a longshore current, which runs parallel to the shore. And this is what happens as you're waiting for a wave. Next thing you know, you start just drifting and drifting and drifting farther and farther away from the ones that you love. And you're not doing anything. I'm not paddling or swimming. I'm simply just there. But because I'm in this current, I begin drifting farther and farther away from the one I love. And that's what's going on right here is that when we think our wealth and all the stuff that we have, our wisdom and our position, who we have friends, our network is all about us. And we think, I did all this. It was my network. It was my hard work. We begin to drift. And we get farther and farther away from the Lord. So what's the solution? Let me give it to you right now. What's the solution? And I want to encourage the parents to teach your kids this. The first thing is this, is gratitude, is gratitude. Is to be thankful, is to be thankful. First Thessalonians talks about in everything, give thanks. Philippians chapter four, when you have a need, he says, don't be anxious for anything, but with thanksgiving, make your supplications known. He says, before you pray and say, God, we got this bill we can't pay. God, I've got this health crisis. I don't know what to do about. I've got this management crisis at my church or my home or my business. I don't know what to do about it. You say, first, you give thanks to God because what it's gonna do is cause you to remember how God has been faithful to you. It's gonna remember, cause you to remember how God has been good to you. And so come up with a way that you can remember God's goodness and faithfulness. And so parents, listen to me. One of the ways you can do that at the dinner table before you pray and bless the food, you can go around the table and say to kids, regardless of whether three or 30, say, you know what? Before we pray, what is one thing you're thankful for? What's one thing you're thankful for? And sometimes I'll just be honest with y'all. It may be like your three-year-old or two-year-old saying, I'm thankful I didn't wet my bed today. All right, great. And what are you thankful for, right? Well, we used to do this at night. Before we'd pray, we'd pray every night before going to bed with our girls. We'd go and say, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for today? And sometimes it's, God, help me remember things on my test. God, help me like, you know, like uh, make peace with this bully at school. God did this for me. We have to remember. So the first thing is gratitude. Gratitude. Secondly is give. There's only one thing that will release the grip of greed from your heart, and that's giving. Regular sacrificial giving will release the grip of greed from your heart of saying, I want more or this is all about me. So if I can encourage you all, we've got many ways at Vice City to give. You can give in the offering boxes in the back. You can give online. You can start to give on a regular basis, but you have to give. And that's one of the ways that we recognize the source of everything I have. I'm just a manager. I'm a steward. God has entrusted this. This all belongs to God. And I'm not saying you have to give it all to Bayou City Fellowship. There are many things that you can give to in this world. God's kingdom is advancing and God is saying to us, one of the ways that we can remember it's God who's blessed us is by giving to his work. 
Third is this, is glory, is glory. What do I mean by glory? The word glory means weighty or important. Um, how many of y'all have ever had this situation before? You have worked on a project at work. You've worked on a project in school. And you turn in the project to your project manager or to your boss. And the next thing you know, your boss is getting the credit for your work. Ever had that before? You work in a group setting with a group project and you do like 90% of the work and the guy who's over your group who didn't do any work gets all the credit for your work. How does it make you feel when other people get the credit for work you've done? I don't feel good about that, amen? Now imagine, how do you think God feels? How do you think God feels when we take credit for what God has done in our lives? How do you think God feels when we take credit for what he's blessed us with? When we say, my house, my car, my kids. Here's the thing. Um, I, was, I was reflecting on this the other day. Is there anyone in here that chose to be born in the city that you were born in? You had control over that. Anyone here choose the family you were going to be born in? Some pre-cosmic way you were there before God and said, God, I want to be born in Houston, Texas to an upper middle class family. I want to go to A&M and then go to Rice for an MBA and then work at ExxonMobil. God, I want to do anybody do all that. We had no control over that. You had no control over the gifts that you have, of the talents that you have, your height. You've got no control over that. And yet God blessed you with those things. So imagine how God feels when we take credit for what God has done. So what we can do is give God glory. We can give God glory, which means give him the recognition he's due. And there's many ways to do that. Again, I'll use the NBA because that's my world for part of my ministry. I mean, I see guys who will make the three-pointer and they'll point up to the sky, right? That's a way that you can say that's God giving me the ability to do that. Even social media, I would say, is amoral. It's not evil. It's not good. It's not either way. But you can use it for good. You can use it to give God glory. If you get that promotion, if you have a kid that gets accepted to college, you can say, hey, I give God praise and glory for opening this door for my son or daughter or for me. It's a way that you can say, God is the most important thing in my life. He's the source of everything I have. So again, if you recognize, man, I'm drifting, I'm drifting, I'm drifting. I'm getting farther and farther away from the Lord. What you can do is you can say, God, I'm gonna reflect on you and say, here's all the things I'm thankful for. I, I keep a journal, like I mentioned before, and I, I write every day. Uh, in two days, July 13th is my one-year anniversary here at Bay City Fellowship, and I've been reading all this thing about how a year ago I was praying, and I'm thankful, I'm thankful, God did this, God did this, God did this, and I'm thankful that God opened this door. How do I remember that? It's because I keep a journal. So think of a way, as families, as singles, as young adults, as grandparents, what are we going to do to regularly remember what we're thankful for God for, to God for, and then to give on a regular basis? And then to give God glory, to give him credit for what he's done. Sadly, Solomon doesn't do this. Verse nine. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. No prophet, no intermediary. It was God himself who appeared to Solomon and had commanded him, verse 10, regarding this thing that he was not to follow other gods, but he did not comply with what the Lord had commanded Oh, my bad. Uh, I forgot. Re look at uh, Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. Here's the warning. I forgot. Here's the warning that God gives uh, 
all the Jews, but I'd say everyone in the covenant community. Deuteronomy chapter eight. A summary of this is found in Proverbs 30 verse nine, a proverb of Agur, which basically says, hey, when I eat and I'm full because I'm so wealthy and I'm trusting my stuff, and then I may ask, well, who's the Lord? Like you basically forget about him. Look at verse 11, Deuteronomy 8, 11. Deuteronomy 8, 11. This is the warning, the prophetic warning. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Verse 12. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, you've just gone to taste of Texas, and you build good houses and live in them. You've got that fat crib in Katy. You've got that house in Memorial. And when your herds and your flocks increase and your silver and gold increase, you've got 401ks and mutual funds and bonds, and you've got all this money in the bank, and you have a vacation home and investment homes. He says, verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and its thirsty ground where there was no water. He who brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, it was he who fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, in order to humble you and in order to put you to the test, to do good for you in the end. Verse 17. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth in order to confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. So he says to the Israelites and he says to us, remember, you were in Egyptian bondage. You were slaves in Egypt. You did not deliver yourself. You did not save yourself. And it applies to us because we did not save ourselves from a bondage of sin. We did not deliver ourselves from condemnation. God did it. But he says the great concern that he has here and the warning is this, is that as you enjoy that dream house, as you enjoy that dream vacation, as your money accumulates in the bank and your investments, he says, you better be careful that you do not forget it was the Lord who gave you this ability. It was the Lord who gave you all this. Your heart is going to begin to drift. Go back to uh, 1 Kings 11. We'll wrap up here. So Solomon forgets. He forgets. Everything goes to his head. Verse 11, 11, 11, 1 Kings 11, 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, so again, the Lord is his prophet. Since you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I'll certainly tear the kingdom away from you and will give it to your servant. However, I will not do it in your day, days only for the sake of your father day, but I will tear it away from the hand of your son, Roboam, down the road. And I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give him one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So he says, Solomon, you knew the Pentateuch. You knew the warnings of Deuteronomy 8. You've read Deuteronomy 17. You know what's commanded there. But this wealth and wisdom that I gave you has gone to your head and you've forgotten about me. And now look at your heart. You've drifted away from me. And because of that, I warned you and you disobeyed. Point number three, disobedience, especially after multiple warnings, has consequences. The consequence is a kingdom divided, an eventual exile into Babylon, a kingdom divided. If you've ever been to the beach and you've seen these signs lately with all the, the people getting swept out by rip currents, if you go to the beach and there's really powerful waves, you'll see signs at the beach like this. 
And it's a warning saying, you know what? There are rip currents out here. You go out here, you get swept out to sea, you get swept under, that's on you. Because you have ignored these warnings. You've purposely disobeyed. For those who've never like surfed or bodyboarded or anything like that, we've all seen signs like this in Houston. Which simply says, you may think you're powerful. You may think your car is powerful, but the waters on the other side of this sign are even more powerful. And you choose to go around the sign and take it your own risk, right? The warnings are there for a reason. And we've seen it after Hurricane Harvey, after all these floods, the warning signs were there, barricades were there, and people removed the barricades or went around them to their own demise. And I just found this out too, that if you choose to go around a barricade and you get stuck in the water and you're on your roof and a helicopter or fire truck or something comes in, do you know who has to pay for that now? You do. Why? Because sign is there. The warning sign is there. You ignored the signs. And because of that, there's a consequence. There's a consequence. And that's what happens to Solomon. Solomon was warned by the Lord. He was given prophetic warning. Don't let the wealth and wisdom go to your head. Don't forget the one who blessed you with that. Don't forget to uh, have gratitude. Don't forget to give back. Don't, don't hoard all these things for you. He didn't heed that. He married 700 women or 1,000 women and his heart was led away from the Lord. So here's the, the big idea for today. A radical focus on Jesus fades due to a gradual forgetting of Jesus. It doesn't happen overnight. But as you are blessed more and more by the Lord, as this church is blessed more and more by the Lord, we better be careful, here's the warning, that we don't forget that it was God who's blessed us with this, these things. Because it's gradual, y'all. It's like being in that little longshore current. It's little by little by little. And then we look up and say, how did we lose our radical focus on Jesus? Um, my spiritual little sister, her name is Heather Wilkinson, Heather Bach Wilkinson. She attended a school in Longview, Texas, which I had never heard of before until she went there. It was a school called Laterno University. In the late 1800s, like as I mentioned, as industrialization increased in America, as they started building roads and railroads all across our nation, a young Robert G. Letourneau, who was born in Vermont, dropped out in the seventh grade to start going to trade school. He moved out to Portland, Oregon, where he became a welder. There in 1905, at the age of 16, he was at a revival. And like I mentioned to you in the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, Revivals are popping up all around the United States. He attended a revival in Portland, Oregon at the age of 16, trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior. Went back to work as a welder and earth mover. So this is earth moving back in the day. He would dig, fill a wheelbarrow with dirt or rocks, pick them up, bring them across and dump them somewhere. And it dawned on him, this is a lot of work. This is a lot of work. So being the welder he was, he built an earth mover. He built the earth mover and it was so popular that people began to buy this earth mover. Then this is what happened. He started Laterno Heavy Industries 
And if you drive today, as you go on vacation through New Mexico, Colorado, California, even the Midwest, and you see these roads and railroads that have been carved through the sides of mountains or through the sides of hills, most likely those were made by Laterno heavy industry earth movers and bulldozers. That's how popular they were in the 1900s. Matter of fact, they said in the, uh, the World War II, 70% of the U.S. armies, like earth movers and industrial equipment came from R.G. Letourneau. In 1919, if you remember this, in 1920, so almost 100 years ago, there's a global pandemic. Did you know that? Called the Spanish flu. And in that global pandemic, R.G. Letourneau, at the age of 31, lost his infant son. It crushed him, as you imagine it would. He went to church trying to find comfort and hope in the Lord. And there at, at church... He rededicated his life to the Lord. And he thought, maybe I need to become a missionary. Maybe I need to become a pastor. And he says, God told him to be the best Christian businessman he could be. So now he's built this large, heavy industry corporation, making millions of dollars, opening up highways and railroads all across the United States. But he knew the grip of greed. He knew that all this wealth that he was accumulating would quickly go to his head and to his heart, and that he would begin drifting slowly from the Lord. So this is a commitment he made. He committed to living on 10% of his income and giving 90% of it away. He did the reverse tithe. Rather than giving 10 and living on 90, he says, I'll live on 10 and give away 90. On top of that, Laterno Industries, his corporation, they gave away 90% of their gross profits and only took 10% back in their company. So he did that company-wide. He did that even as an individual. He was a president of Gideon's International. You're saying, I've heard that name before. Next time you go to a hotel, open the drawer. If you see a Bible in there, you'll see a logo on that Bible. And it'll say Gideon's International. Their mission is to get the word of God into everybody's hands. I remember growing up in secular California. And I remember one day leaving class, going back to my car in the parking lot, and there are a group of men with these boxes, and they're handing out small orange New Testaments from Gideon's International because they want to get the Word of God and the gospel in everyone's hands. And so R.G. Letourneau knew that his heart would begin to drift, and so he made a commitment to give 90% of his income. And in 1946, he found an unused military hospital in Longview, Texas, seventh grade dropout, y'all. No college education, no MBA from Harvard, multi-multi-millionaire. So he said, I want to start a Christian school that will help produce the next generation of Christian businessmen and businesswomen and engineers and lawyers. And he started Laterno University because he not only wanted to make an impact in his generation, but for generations to come. So again, my friends, God is not against prosperity. God is not against wealth. God is such a good and gracious and generous God. Amen? Amen? But God doesn't want the wealth and wisdom that he gives us to go to our head and heart and us slowly beginning to drift from him. So again, give gratitude, give with your resources, and give God glory. Let's pray. God, what a uh, prophetic warning for us um, God, we may feel like we're not blessed materially as we look at um, Richard Branson or Jeff Bezos or others. But God, we have truly been blessed materially. God, we know that there are brothers and sisters in Christ today who are walking to church in whether as human, more human, 
hotter in buildings, church buildings, with cheap plastic chairs, no air conditioning, who've walked for miles and for hours to gather as the people of God. So God, as we sit inside this air-conditioned building with nice, comfortable chairs, with coffee in the lobby, God, we recognize that we're blessed. We are so blessed. But God, we do pray that these blessings of wealth and wisdom, of family and friends, of a network, of a position, will not go to our head and our hearts and in pride, we forget about you. God, we may not say it out of our mouths like, who is the Lord? But God, it can be seen in our worship and in our actions, the way we treat people. Going from that very humble, quiet, junior executive, that resident that used to talk to all the nurses and patients, that used to work with all the people in the mailroom that would say thank you. And now we've gotten big headed. We think we're better than others. We mistreat people and use people. God, we repent. Would you forgive us, God? We have forgotten that you are the hand of every good thing. First Timothy chapter six, verses 17 through 19 and verses 11 and on. God, you've given these, us these good things to enjoy. And so, God, as it says there in the text, God, that we would be generous givers as a reminder of how good you've been to us, as a way to just give a portion back to give to your kingdom work. God, would you be at work in our hearts about that? God, if there's anyone here today that's yet to put their faith in Christ, God, faith in Christ is not health and wealth. God, faith in Christ is not the, 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 the wonderful life or the perfect life, but faith in Jesus Christ is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they may know the one true God, have a relationship with the one true God and Jesus Christ, who God the Father sent. So God, I pray today that they would put their faith in Christ alone to have eternal life, to have that eternal relationship with you, to have a walk, to hear your voice, to know your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all God's people said.